Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. Um, folks, uh, this is a big deal. Um, I have Sandra Tanner on my program. Uh, I'm so honored, Sandra, that you have graced, graced me with your presence in both in Utah and now on my program. Uh, Sandra Tanner, uh, welcome. <laughs> Welcome. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, of course, you don't really need an introduction, but, you know, because my audience is very aware of who you are, but, you know, the, you had a ministry, uh, still do, uh, Utah Lighthouse Ministry, located right in downtown Utah, right across from the famous uh, Smith Ballpark. And uh, you guys have your home there yet. And, and in, in the early 60s, this young couple... Um, who had a lot of questions about Mormonism, uh, started this dynamic uh, ministry that has stood the test of time. And Sandra, I just want to honor you guys, you and your <laughs> husband, for what you did. Yeah, it's been a long journey. <laughs> <laughs> so just real quick, I just want to talk a little bit about where we actually first met. Now, you and I actually, just a few weeks after I started the channel, you kind of found me and uh, have been very supportive of my efforts. And so you and I kind of got to know each other a little bit talking on Facebook, but then we had the opportunity uh, to, well, I had the opportunity to get out to Utah to see you uh, be on a panel uh, dealing with murder among the Mormons and there, almost yeah. the entire cast was there. Uh, what was it like to go to the Mormon History Association, a place that uh, was not a place that typically would embrace you with open arms or would have you on a forum? What was that like? Well, it was a different experience. And when I was first asked to be on the panel, uh, I said, are you sure that everyone on the panel is okay with me being on it? <laughs> because I didn't know how the ones that were still Mormon would feel about me being on the panel. So anyways, they assured me that, yes, everyone's cool and that's fine. So uh, it was a different experience because the early years of our involvement in Mormon history, like 1960 to 1980, uh, it was much more, uh, what would I say, formal. Going to Mormon history used to seem like going to another session of conference. Everyone dressed like it was church. And uh, even those that were having problem with some area of Mormonism still viewed Gerald and I with suspicion and intimidation. They, they didn't know whether they should be seen with me. Um, however, when it got to the Mark Hoffman time, then we started to have more of them talking with us and it got a little less stilted around people and people weren't as afraid <laughs> to be seen with me. I remember at the one, this would have had to have been in the early 80s. I can't remember which Mormon history it was, but Valen Tippett's Avery was still alive then, the one that wrote, uh, co-authored Mormon Enigma. And she came up to me and gave me a big hug and it took me so by surprise. <laughs> That was the first hug I'd ever gotten from anybody at Mormon history. Uh, of course, she was a little more liberal at that point. 
So it's been a journey. I mean, now when I go, uh, people say hi and there's not a problem. But early on, there was a fear of guilt by association. If you look too friendly with the tanners, uh, you may be on the road to apostasy. So there was a worry about <laughs> being seen with me. <laughs> and I, I've always felt like shopping that I'm kind of like the other woman. And so some couples walking down in the mall and I pass them and the man's shaking his head, you know, don't, don't say hello. <laughs> and I think, oh my goodness, you know, this must be what it's like to be the other woman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it reminds me, I, I, Brent Ashworth, I remember him detailing how, uh, yeah, in the eighties, I remember going and visiting the Tanners and I realized, Oh, these are really nice people. And I think Bruce Van Orman it relayed a similar to, thing to me where they had this mind think, image in their head of who they are. And then when they engaged you right around that time, they realized, wow, what a wonderful person. Yeah, it was, it was funny. Uh, it was sad, but it was funny to, uh, and even now I have people come in the store just this last week, guy come in to apologize for all the bad things he said about me 20 years ago. <laughs> Oh, dear. So it's been a funny journey. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that's interesting. You know, you post on Facebook now and then uh, some letters that are people send to you and testimonies yeah. and, and and people who are like your, were your sworn enemy 20, 30 years ago. And now they're yeah. like your biggest fan. Yeah, it's been it's been quite encouraging to finally find uh, find my people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is right. That is right. And, you know, it was so cool because, you know, I, I when I was at the MHA, that was my, basically, I just fly into the, the new airport and Rick Bennett's sitting there waiting to pick me up. And and we, we head on out and we, we, he gives me a little tour of downtown. We have a, a burger together at a, at a restaurant near uh, the temple. And uh, I get up to Park City and I'm, and I'm all of a sudden, uh, all these people that were on Mormon stories and gospel tangents, uh, I'm seeing them and meeting them and yes. giving them my business card. And then there is Sandra Tanner yes. up on the stage with <laughs> some of the key players of the whole Hoffman thing. And uh, I, what I did was I very carefully watched the audience while yeah. you were talking because I wanted to read them. And I could tell they were <laughs> very, very engaged and very interested in hearing what you had to say. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah. so that tells us, that tells me all that I need to know about how the, the regard, uh, yeah. well-regarded you are. Things went, things went good. Yes. <laughs> sure did. It sure did. Yeah. I was really happy about it. So yeah, that was a real good experience. Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I've talked to you uh, briefly before was um, I've, I've watched a lot of interviews with you and I, I'm fascinated with um, going into areas of history within Mormonism that maybe aren't well explored. I did that a little bit with Daniel Stone with the William Bickerton biography, uh, where we discussed also his church and uh, things yeah. about the history of this church that aren't around or aren't well known. And I kind of want to do that with some of the early days of when yeah. you and Gerald start engaging um, other branches of the restoration, particularly when a young, uh, was it 18 or 19 year old Gerald makes his way on a 1200 mile drive with four breakdowns uh, on his way yeah. to Independence, Missouri and starts engaging different restoration branches. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, uh, when Gerald was struggling with uh, how to view his faith, 
he met the reorganized pastor here in Salt Lake. And so that was the first encounter he had with any of the other groups claiming Joseph Smith. And then in the encyclopedia, he read about the splinter groups. And he was curious what their story would be. I mean, here's the reorganized pastor telling him everything that's wrong with uh, Brigham Young and scrap all that. And we're the true guys. Well, then he reads about, oh, wait a minute. There's a lot of other guys out there that think they got the true handle on this. So he decides he has to go out and check them out. He wanted to see a book of commandments because uh, he read David Whitmer's pamphlet and Whitmer told about how the revelations had been changed uh, between the 1833 book of commandments and the 1835 TNC. So the temple law, the church of Jesus Christ temple lot, whatever they say it, uh, so he actually saw the early printing of the revelations for himself and verified that Whitmer told the truth. Uh, he also knew that there was a one Whitmer still alive that claimed to know David Whitmer. And that was, I believe, Peter Whitmer's daughter or granddaughter. And uh, he found her and uh, talked to her a little bit about Whitmer had his own church for a while. And Gerald was curious if the Whitmer group was still around. And she said, no, it's long gone. And she had no interest in uh, resurrecting it. She was too old to bother about anything now. So I don't know who all he visited, but then he came across the little Church of Christ Book, Book of Mormon group. Now, he would have already known about them, I'm sure, from James Wardle, the barber that was in downtown Salt Lake. Uh, Wardle had a barber shop where the Matheson Courthouse is now on State Street. And Wardle's barber shop was, uh, prior to the internet, uh, it was the crossroads of the West. <laughs> You came to Salt Lake, you want to know what's going on, go by James Wardle's Barbershop. And he was reorganized. And at the back of his barbershop, in a back room, he had the largest private collection of early Mormon documents of anyone in the state. And so Gerald started spending a lot of time with James and looking at the old documents and uh, I'm assuming that James must have encouraged him when he got to Independence to go visit this little Church of Christ, because James already knew the pastor, who was a lady named Pauline Hancock. Pauline's father used to be pastor here in Salt Lake at the reorganized church. And so James had known the uh, Hancock family. Well, I don't know what her maiden name was. Well, anyways, her family had been out here to do the pastoring. And um, then Pauline and her husband were in the reorganized church. And then they got involved in some movement that was looking for um, a pure stream, <laughs> for lack of a word, uh, of what Book of Mormon followers should be. And there was a kind of movement. There was a fellow that wrote a pamphlet on um, 
the oneness of God um, as a Book of Mormon believer that had influenced them. So a bunch of people pulled out of the reorganized church at this time and became this little Church of Christ. They set aside everything but the Bible and Book of Mormon. And once you do that, it divorces you from almost all Mormon doctrine of what a peop- uh, what someone would think of Mormon doctrine today. So when he met this little group and met with Pauline, she started telling him about uh, her journey and also how the Book of Mormon should stand on its own. And that if he read and prayed about the Book of Mormon, he'd find out that was true. And he didn't need Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, priesthood, any of these other trappings that this little group felt were all added on and that Joseph was a fallen prophet. And that's what Whitmer maintains in his little pamphlet and addressed all believers in Christ, that Joseph was a fallen prophet so that uh, he shouldn't have set up a church. So uh, this little group followed a lot of the Whitmer line of thinking in how they presented things. So he made two, Gerald made two different trips to independence and stayed for some time with one of the families in the church where he could spend time talking to the different people about their journeys and talking to Pauline about her journey and the research that she was doing on early Mormonism and the Book of Mormon and why Joseph had to be viewed as a fallen prophet. So it was through the influence of this little group that Gerald rejected Mormon theology, Utah Mormon theology, and started reading the Book of Mormon to base all his beliefs out of that book. So he goes back to Salt Lake and um, decides to start having some sort of little cottage meetings at his folks' house. He's still at home. Uh, And so that's how I met Gerald. My grandma took me to one of his cottage meetings. And not that I was interested, (laughs) uh, but that's how I met Gerald was my grandma took me to this meeting where he was uh, espousing the views of this little uh, Church of Christ. Well, as I was reading in one of the accounts where you weren't so interested to go there, but once Gerald walked into the room, you got a lot more interested. Uh, oh, yes. He was a very cute, very attractive young man. And uh, I didn't realize he was shy. But, I mean, if you're holding a meeting in your house where you're talking to 12 to 15 people, uh, that it's... Just not, you don't think of someone that's really shy doing that. So, (laughs) but he was really shy. And uh, (laughs) that's right. Yeah, that's a good point. I never made that, I made that connection. Um, Well, okay. So these little firesides or whatever that he was doing, what, what exactly would happen in these meetings? Would it be like a church service or is it more like a a, a teaching uh, lessons or something like that or history or whatever? Uh, Hmm. Well, he'd have a short little introduction, and then he would play one of Pauline's teaching tapes. Um, I don't remember if they had tapes by other members of the congregation 
but I know they at least had, he had some by Pauline and they would have been mainly along the line of what does the Book of Mormon actually teach as opposed to the restoration churches that are adding on to Book of Mormon doctrine. And so <laughs> Gerald was real cute. And so I asked him over to my grandma's and then he started telling me about all this stuff he had found. So um, that's what launched me into doing research. Had he been a married middle-aged guy, my life might've been very different. <laughs> so I can't claim that I was on this big spiritual quest. <laughs> uh, uh, but but I do view it as God's providence. I, uh, for, for me to come from Southern California and end up standing on Gerald's front porch, <laughs> I think is, you know, kind of like a miracle. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and if he hadn't have been this cute young guy, I'd have probably just yawned and after the meeting gone home. <laughs> no, and that would have never given it a second thought. You know, it's, it's so interesting too, my one or two evangelical <laughs> uh, viewers, because I'm mostly LDS. Um, of course, you are the great-great-granddaughter of Brigham Young. Of Brigham Young, yeah. And uh, so I just wanted to throw that in there because I'm assuming most of my audience knows who you are. And uh, so, you know, one thing I, I want to talk about, because, well, first of all, you were doing a lot of this research with, with Gerald. But before we get into that, I just have a couple more questions about sure. Pauline um, she had like a, like a vision, correct? That was kind of yeah. like, led her, she felt convicted of her sins. Um, can you just talk, talk a little bit about maybe her, if you will, conversion? Boy, it's been too long for me to remember what all was in her story. Well, it was, Gerald well, had a tape recording of it, but, uh, it's been oh, years and years since I've heard it, but yeah, she claimed some sort of, uh, divine, uh, experience that pulled her back to being a follower of the Book of Mormon, but to follow Christ, to make Christ the center of her life, that she was a sinner, not uh, uh, just a nice person that did bad things once in a while, but uh, convicted that she was truly separated from God and in need of his mercy. And so um, that's, I think, is a really interesting thing that makes this whole uh, particular um, um, aspect of the Restoration so interesting to me is that, one, it's the only Restorationist church that was started by a female and Mm -hmm. and also was somebody who had what would be a conventional uh, born-again experience. Right. And um, Yes, uh, their, their little church probably could have been uh pluck plop 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 down into the middle of a nazarene setting and i don't know how much you'd have noticed the difference as far as the demeanor the folksiness the humble follower of jesus um the loving embrace uh and the emphasis on personal holiness Uh, so this little group, they were not Calvinists and, um, jumping ahead in the story when they finally disbanded, I think most of the people went to the Nazarene church. So, I mean, that they were very much of that kind of, uh, feel 
to their church. Uh, although at the time they had little hints of Pentecostal stuff, uh, they didn't speak in tongues, but they did raise their hands in service when they were singing, when they felt blessed. And I, my experience at the Nazarene church back at that time, I'd say, I didn't see that. I don't remember seeing the Nazarenes raise their hand in praise. Uh, so Pauline's group was very much that. And when I visited, uh, you know, that was kind of, well, there were a number of things that were culturally different from Pauline's church than any church I'd been to before. <laughs> and what was a worship service like? What would happen in a, in a typical worship service? Okay, so... Uh, Pauline's little group was sometimes referred to as the basement church because they were in a basement of a building with the hope of eventually having enough money to build uh, a sanctuary on top of the basement. <clears throat> so uh, in uh, they had theater seats in the room and they would have had like opening prayer and song and uh they would have had uh they had prayer time at the beginning of the service <clears throat> and this uh when i went out to visit when gerald sent me out after we got married to visit them <laughs> i went out alone and it was uh, uh, a bit of a culture shock they all turn and, and kneel at their theater chairs for prayer and they all pray at the same time vocally. So they aren't listening to each other. Everybody's just praying. And so you have this cacophony of people's voices all over in the building as they pour their heart out to God. Well, <laughs> I didn't know what the heck was going on. Like, and how do they pray? So this is the first time I had ever heard people pray like they really knew God and were just personally talking to him. Uh, there was no sense of performance, no sense of trying to impress me or anyone else that might have heard them pray. Each person was caught up in their own worship time as they knelt there. And it was very impressive because I I had just never seen this kind of sincerity of total openness with God, uh, with no pretense, no cover-up, no hiding uh, what I'm really like, just uh, calling out to God for, um, say, for instance, forgiveness for getting mad at their husband the day before or, you know, whatever. I mean, it was all just very personal, uh, like someone might might pray in home. So the sincerity of the whole thing was very moving. And uh, they'd have songs. And as they would uh, sing these worship songs, and some of them were typical uh, Christian hymns of the day that you would have heard it's uh, my computer just said my internet connection was. Yes, Sandra, I can hear. I can hear your voice. We're going okay. 
I can hear your voice and um, okay. we're, we're going to plow through this. So Sandra, you know, we were discussing, we've had a little technical issues here and you were discussing uh, the experience of going into uh, the worship service. You talked about how personal it was and how powerful it was to see all these people praying and maybe confessing their sins. Um, and you felt it was quite a, a unique experience and you, and you got into that. What, as you were seeing this stuff occur, what was going through your mind? Because you're a young person at this point and you have very oh, little yeah. experience. 18, yeah, and I'd gone to very few churches. <laughs> so um, I, it was a, um, it was a whole different thing than hearing uh, a Mormon pray. It, uh, Mormon prayers seem to be so uh, structured for a public audience that people were very aware, uh, you know, that, that that it was a public prayer. And in Mormonism, you have to pray in these and vows to sound King James. So to hear people just pouring their heart out to God in a very natural way was very impressive, uh, very moving. So I felt drawn to these people. Uh, they, they're, When they sang songs, it was a little different, kind of like in churches today. Uh, when someone would feel blessed, they'd raise their hand in praise. And I'm like, mm, huh, you know, <laughs> what's this? Never seen anything like that before. But it was all done. It wasn't for show. I mean, they really felt moved. And after that, Pauline would preach and she would use both the Bible and the Book of Mormon. But it, it would all be to the glory of God and Christ. It, it was uh, would have been a sermon other than the Book of Mormon references. It could have been a sermon in any church that was evangelical. So I was very impressed with the communal love and acceptance, the non-pretentiousness of it, that that it was, they were all just real. Uh, no one was putting on a show. So what kind of preacher was she like? She wasn't like a Pentecostal preacher. She wasn't, or like Southern Baptist for that matter. She wasn't one that was shouting or yelling or you know, pound in the pulpit or anything. It was uh, powerful, but it would have been more like just a regular, I don't know, middle of the road kind of okay. huh. pastor preaching in a much more natural way than some of the Southern preachers uh, that of churches I later attended. It seemed like a lot of them had this idea that to sound like you had the Holy Spirit, you had to really shout. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in plenty of services like that uh, myself. So, um, you know, uh, so so now you, so you, then basically what happens is you guys are basically running like a, a satellite church of hers in Utah. Uh, yeah. Essentially, is that, would that be a safe way of saying it? Uh, well, we didn't, we weren't doing church. We, we had a midweek Bible Book of Mormon study where we would not talk about historical issues of Mormonism. 
but do a study of what the Book of Mormon actually taught. And so we had several family and friends of my grandma's, uh, her neighbors and different ones that were open-minded enough. Uh, we got together with just to talk about what the Book of Mormon actually taught as opposed to what Mormonism would be teaching in a regular Sunday school class. Um, so by eliminating the other books of scripture that made the teachings very different. In fact, my aunt got in trouble over this. My One of my aunts was coming <clears throat> and uh, she evidently started asking questions in, in church at the, at the ward house. And uh, the bishop's wife was sent over to find out what she'd been reading and what was the problem. And she said, well, I'm just reading my Book of Mormon. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> and so she's told, every, uh, the bishop tells her, every Mormon I know that's engaged in studying the scriptures on their own has always run into problems. And that's why you should only study it at church. Oh, <laughs> uh, dear. Uh, trying to see what the Book of Mormon itself actually taught. Yeah, that's so interesting to me. You know, I just want to relay, um, you know, uh, when you ex told me about your experiences um, with this particular group, it was very interesting to me because I had the very first restorationist church that I had the opportunity to visit was the Church of Jesus Christ. Um, they are what I call the Pentecostal cousins. Uh, all they believe in is the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And I remember when you were describing to me the church service that you experienced in Missouri, hey. it was so familiar to me. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, even the getting down on their knees and praying, oh. they yeah. did that. And uh, it was a three-hour service, but it felt like it lasted 45 minutes. Uh, it was really wonderful. The people were beautiful. I, the kind of person you were describing was the same kind of person that I met in that church. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever had any interactions with somebody from the Church of Jesus Christ? I've met a couple of people when they've come through Utah and Salt Lake and have stopped in to talk to me a minute, but I haven't really known any of them. Never okay. been to their services. Okay. Yeah, I was I was really impressed with the the whole uh, situation. I, I I you know, I grew up in the evangelical world and unfortunately there's a lot of excesses and uh, sometimes you have services with the smoke machines and the disco balls and all that kind of stuff and I found a little simple church where they were uh, they really loved Jesus at that church and that really really struck me in a very um, pretty profound way. And so yeah. I, I just wanted to say that I felt like you and I kind of attended the same <laughs> church. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I, that's yeah. what I find interesting is those worlds where we have some uh, connectivity and crossover. Um, those are areas in which maybe we can build some bridges is in that familiar, yeah. air, familiar territory. Right. Yes. When you put Jesus first and your emphasis is on honoring Christ and not uh, trying to achieve different job positions or leadership roles or whatever, you know, it changes the dynamics in the group when, when the focus is truly on centering uh, worship of Christ and to know him better. So now Pauline, to the very end, she held on to the Book of Mormon as being uh, scripture, correct? 
Yes. Uh, however, in talking with her uh, friends after her death, after her, they gave up the Book of Mormon and she died in uh, what was the late 60s. I can't remember what year she died. I think it was 62. Could it be? Was it that early? Yeah. I th- or I think maybe so. three. Okay. Anyways. Yeah. I might've been right about that time. Um, the uh, Wilcoxes, one of the prominent families in the church became the pastors and um, Mrs. Wilcox had been one of the very close friends with uh, Pauline. And I talked to Olive about what she would have thought Pauline would have made about this transition. The church in 72, I think it was, they voted as a group to set aside the Book of Mormon. And as far as I know, they're the only splinter group that has ever made the move as a group through a vote to move out of the Mormon restoration movement into regular evangelical Christianity. Uh, But I asked her what she thought Pauline would have made of all this. And her feeling was that Pauline was so centered on honoring God by following truth that she felt that Pauline would have done the same thing, that she would have given up the Book of Mormon at the same time as the whole group. Uh, But that's just conjecture. But yes, she believed it all to her death. And uh, she died of cancer. She had hoped for healing. And um, that's why it's odd that they never got into tongues because they believed very much in the gifts. uh, And they believed in the gift of healing. And Pauline was really trusting that God was going to heal her. They came, uh, Pauline and Olive and Barbara, another lady in the church, came out to Salt Lake to visit in 61, but before, just before Pauline died. And um, Pauline wanted us to know that she truly had cancer because she was praying for healing. And so she actually showed us the open wound on the side under her arm to the side of her breast uh, where she had this open wound from the cancer. And she wanted us to see it because she was trusting that God would heal her. And she was afraid that people would just say, well, you were never really sick. You didn't really have cancer. So she wanted us to be witnesses to that. But then her statement to us was, if I'm not healed, it don't hold it against God. It will be because of my lack of faith, not because of God's lack of ability to heal. And of course she wasn't healed. Um, So she had a very strong view of healing as being something that was for the world today, that it was that the gifts hadn't passed and yet they never went into tongues. So it's kind of odd that they made that division on those things. It is fascinating. So now when they would pray for healing, would they um, lay their hands on them for healing? Yeah. Um, although I never saw a formal uh, praying for Pauline for healing and, but that I wasn't there in their church to see if they had done any formal type of thing that way. Uh, but with her two lady friends that came out on the trip, I mean, we all prayed together 
for Pauline's healing. And I think we may have laid hands on her. I can't remember uh, for sure on that. But they, yes, they believed in that type of uh, approach to praying for healing, to anoint and uh, uh, lay hands on the sick for healing. Hmm. Interesting. So through the miracle of editing uh, by probably most likely Rick Bennett, we are going to get this interview done. Uh, so uh, Sandra was having some technical issues. And so now all of a sudden you magically see her appear in another setting. Well, we had a little trouble. And I went to Sandra and said, Sandra, we can do this another time. I value, no, 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 just give me a few minutes. I'll head on down to the bookstore. And so that's where she's at now in her office, the bookstore. So Sandra and I were actually talking about um, uh uh, Gerald was starting to have doubts about the Book of Mormon. And you had mentioned that it was actually when he was around early on, when you first got married, he was starting to have those doubts. So maybe talk a little bit about that development. Well, Gerald had already read a lot of material uh, before I met uh, Mormon arguments and defenses against those that would attack the Book of Mormon. So uh, he at first was uh, uh, feeling assurance that there were answers to all of the things that were bothering him. And uh, one of the books he was looking at was Francis Kirkham's books, New, uh, oh, what is the name of Kirkham's books? Uh, New Witness. New Witness for Christ in the Book of Mormon. And so Kirkham deals <clears throat> with some of the kind of problems Brody brings up in her biography of Joseph Smith. And so Gerald had wrestled with some of those kinds of problems. But uh, I didn't realize how much some areas were bothering him. And so when he wrote to Pauline about these, he didn't tell me about this. I didn't know until later that he had corresponded with her about some of these problems. But when we went back out to Missouri, oh, when would this have been? In uh, 60, I guess it would have been, um, Gerald Nye and his sister went out there. Um, he talked to Pauline some about uh, some of his problem areas and Pauline, uh, I was going to get baptized and Pauline wanted to be sure that I had my doubts settled uh, before I was baptized. And I had prayed and prayed and prayed and, and I felt that I had received a confirmation that the book of Mormon was true. And so I said, yes, I'm fully prepared to follow Christ with both the Bible and book of Mormon. And uh, so I was baptized and Gerald uh, I don't know if he was just relying on the strength of my conviction, just said, well, if Sandra's convinced, uh, I'm throwing my hat in with her and okay, uh, he's just going to go by faith and accept it. Uh, but then he kept reading and studying and then it finally boiled over to where he, he had very serious problems. Um, we both went on our own path in a sense of, studying Book of Mormon issues, but uh, we both 
came about the same time of concluding that we could no longer embrace the Book of Mormon as a scripture and set it aside. Uh, that would have been in like the fall of 62. And um, so this would have been after Pauline died. And I don't think it would have mattered if Pauline were still alive. I We would have still, uh, we wouldn't have had a problem to tell her this. Uh, we knew she would have been disappointed. And the little group in Missouri was very disappointed as well when we told them this. But they were so loving about it all. <laughs> just were so sweet. They were grieved that we had given up the Book of Mormon, but we stayed friends and communicated with each other. Uh, so that when that little group's leaders, the Wilcoxes, started to struggle with Book of Mormon issues, uh, they told us privately that they were looking into these areas and that they were soon going to approach the congregation about having a midweek service that was just to explore the historicity of the Book of Mormon. They had another midweek service where they just had a regular prayer meeting and regular uh, Christian service. But this would be another meeting. So uh, like Tuesday, they would have the regular Bible Book of Mormon prayer meeting thing. And on Thursday, they would have a meeting discussing the historical issues with the validity of the Book of Mormon with the intent that at a, after a certain amount of time, they would put it before the congregation whether to keep, continue to use the Book of Mormon. And the Wilcoxes had already determined that they were ready to give it up, but they didn't tell the group this before the meeting was to come about for the vote because they didn't want to influence anyone. They wanted to make sure everyone was thinking for themselves and ready to make their own decision. So when it finally came to a vote, the majority voted to set aside the Book of Mormon. A few families uh, wanted to stay with the Book of Mormon and they went off into one of the other splinter groups there in independence. And the ones that left the Book of Mormon went on with the little church for a while, but without the restoration element, without the Book of Mormon part, uh, what was the point of duplicating more Christian churches in Independence, Missouri? <laughs> mm -hmm. So they finally decided that they were redundant and uh, that it was best to just fold the little work and seek Christian fellowship in one of the established churches in the area. And I just, as I recall, what brought this on within the church questioning the Book of Mormon was that the transcripts of the glass looking trials were made available. Is that correct? Yes, uh, Wes Walters found the 26th trial document in, what is it, 67, 8, whenever it was. And up until this time, I mean, the, the little group digging charges uh, against Joseph Smith, but I don't think they had really taken them seriously. I think they were still kind of viewing those as slander um, by disgruntled people. But when Wes found the proof of the 26th trial, then they were faced with taking a new look at uh, the issue of uh, would God use a necromancer? Would he use a man who communed with the spirits and did magical incantations, uh, which are condemned in the Old Testament, 
would he use that same man and that same instrument, the stone in the hat? Would the, God use that same instrument for fraud and then later use it to deliver scripture? And they were of the opinion that, uh, no, that would confuse the message. God would never use uh, a magician <laughs> uh, to bring forth his word. Hmm. So they uh, voted to set it aside. Yeah, so I just felt this was a very important story that I wanted to be told um, because I've heard bits and pieces of it. And I just I really appreciate you. Uh, we're able to um, document this uh, in the way that you've shared it with me. And I really appreciate it. You know, so I, you had mentioned earlier about the James Wardle and his uh, barbershop in the intersection of the entire world of Mormondom yes. kind of makes its way there. And uh, one of the characters I just want to talk a little bit about was uh, was Ogden Kraut, yeah. who was, well, tell a little bit about Ogden Kraut. And because it's, what I find fascinating about is that Gerald and him became friends. Right. Well, back in the day, <laughs> There was no internet, and so at James Wardle's shop, if you were there different days, a different researchers would stop in at the store to talk with James, and uh, it was uh, a way to meet others that had the same kind of interest. And so Gerald met uh, Ogden Kraut. Well, we met all kind of people visiting at James' shop. We met the LeBarons and all sorts of true prophets. So <laughs> we met Ogden and uh, Gerald and him had a good rapport, even though they were coming from totally different points of view. Uh, Ogden appreciated Gerald's commitment to being uh, fair on his uh, research that he was looking for the actual documents to see how the story actually unfolded. And so while we might do research on Adam God because we didn't believe it, he would do research on Adam God because he did. <laughs> and the same with polygamy. So there were times when Gerald and Ogden would get together to share notes and compare research on a given topic. And um, so it was, it was an interesting friendship, but Ogden was always very nice to us. <laughs> And yeah, and I just remember getting to know Ogden through those interviews that Rick Bennett had uh, did of Ann Wild. And yeah. did you ever have much interaction with her? No. Uh, at one time, we bought a few of Ogden's books and we bought them through Ann. And it was rumored at that time that she was a plural wife of Ogden's. Um, but we didn't know that. And Ogden was known as an independent polygamist. He wasn't part of a particular splinter group. Um, and so all the groups, I think, kind of viewed him as a friend, as a fellow researcher and uh, someone they could share information with and research. Uh, so we had a little bit of interaction with Anne to buy Ogden's books, but not in the sense of really knowing her. I got to know her more after she started working for Benchmark, after Ogden died, <laughs> and uh, seeing her at Sunstone and things like that. Oh, oh, that's interesting. So you you do know her a little bit. That's cool. Yeah. Um, you know, I uh, I'm just uh, one of the things that we talked about when I was out there was you were kind of talking to me a little bit about this forthcoming book that's coming about you and Gerald. 
Yeah. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about maybe the process that's been involved in this because it's kind of taken a little longer than you expected. Yes. Well, uh, several years ago, uh, Signature Books approached our friend Ron Huggins, who has done articles in Dialogue and has done articles for our newsletter. Uh, so he's been involved in Mormon history for a long time. But it's not his specialty. Ron Huggins is a New Testament scholar and taught for five years out at Midwest Baptist Theological Seminary. And um, also worked here in Salt Lake when at the Salt Lake Theological Seminary when it was going. But uh, Ron had been a friend of ours for years. And so Signature Books approached him about doing our biography. And... Um, we were glad that they were asking someone who was a friend as opposed to someone that might have been uh, a little more disposed to uh, uh, cast us in a more sinister light. So Ron's been working on this for years. I gave him full access to anything he wanted to see. Um, <laughs> he spent time going through my attic and through my papers and boxes. Gerald never filed. He would do a research project on a book and all the notes, everything, photocopies, everything would just go in a box. You know, dump in a box, close it up. We're done with that one. And so nothing was filed. And different times through the years when our books would come out, people would say, oh, I'd like a photocopy of XYZ out of the book, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, where did Gerald put it? Um, and it wasn't until I finally started filing years later that I started finding these different things Gerald would reference in the books, but that I hadn't had a copy of. So, and when Ron started going through our papers, he would come across different letters. Oh, I think you ought to file this. This is important. Yeah. <laughs> so we have tried to gather up the documents in a little, a little better form. Uh, Ron did a lot of interviews with me, and he did a lot of interviews with different people that knew us, um, read a lot of our material. Uh, so but he's worked for years on this. When he finally turned his manuscript in, I don't know how many pages of a book it would have been, but it would have been a monster book. He turned in a really big manuscript. And um, so the editors cut it probably a half or a third <laughs> of what he turned in. Uh, Ron is known for meticulous uh, footnotes. So it was just a little more than they wanted to know. <laughs> uh, I mean, he traced our ancestries back to uh, Plymouth and I mean, just <laughs> who came on the Mayflower and everything. So uh, it's finally, I think, going to come out next year. They are down to the final proofread uh, before it's printed. So we're hopeful. <laughs> But Ron, um, as a non-Mormon, as a Christian viewing on life, uh, some Mormons will feel he was maybe too kind to us, um, which is okay with me. <laughs> but, uh, but I can see how uh, a Mormon scholar might say, well, yeah, Ron was uh, their friend. So, um, 
but I encouraged Ron to tell it like he thought, you know, I didn't want him to sugarcoat anything. And um, so for, for whatever uh, flaws it will have, <laughs> it uh, should be an interesting read because Gerald and I were involved in so many crazy areas of Mormon research and events, lawsuits, just oh, all the crazy people we knew through the years. Uh, it's been quite a journey. So a lot of funny story, a lot of peculiar stories, I should say, not funny, but um, intriguing stories about the gathering of Mormon church history over a 60 year period. Yeah, it's I'm, I'm so stoked to uh, when this book is going to come out. I uh, Is it going to come out in 2022 for sure now? I I hope so. I that right. Oh. I told them I want to retire. They got to get that book done. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, I I um I'm hoping now did they has a title been given yet for the book? Uh the title they put in their last catalog was Gerald and Sandra Tanner their story. Not the most creative title around, but Originally, they had some other title that Ron objected to, and Ron wanted something that was more favorable to us that uh, they felt wasn't clear enough what the book was. So, you know, it's one of those things where everybody's got a different idea of what it should be. So they ended up with a very neutral, generic sounding title that probably won't excite people. Uh and I just assume that people that know who we are will want to read the book, even though the title's not that inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was actually meant to text John DeLynn um, because I wanted to ask him, hey, are you still going to be doing a, um, a party, uh, when the bo a book release <laughs> party? And yeah. uh, I hope so, because I'm, I'm basically, my plan is, is that if I can get there for the book release party, I'm, I'm getting there. Oh, okay. Well, let's hope we get it all together. <laughs> I, I hope so too. So I, I really want to be there because I think it's an important uh, thing and it's an important event. And I feel that what you and Gerald did uh, should be honored. Uh, you've been very influential in my life because throughout the years of my having my little personal study of Mormonism, uh, you and Gerald would uh, pop into the pages of many of the books that I have read. <laughs> yes. So I just want to thank you uh, so much for, for everything that you guys have done. And I also want to thank you for um, being, a, being so flexible that we have technical issues and you're able just to think on your feet and handle it. Um, that was awesome on your part. Uh, like I said, before we got on, I said, we ain't going to let that devil get in the, uh, stop this go. video. From uh, we figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> we got it figured out. So um, Sandra, I just want to thank you so much for coming on to my program. Uh, yeah. I just want to remind my viewers, viewers to like and subscribe and hit the notification buttons to be reminded when a new uh, video comes in. I will provide a link to the UTLM website so that if you want to get some information on Sandra's fantastic uh, ministry. And also just keep in mind, Sandra, um, what are the hours of the bookstore? 10 until 5, Monday through Friday and Saturday afternoon from 1 to 5. I'm say, not in the bookstore on Saturday afternoons, although we're open. They want to see me. They have to come during the week. <laughs> during the week. Okay. Now I will tell the audience that Sandra on a Sunday, it, it opened the store up for 
Rick Bennett and I and regaled yeah. us for three and a half hours of tales and stories and maybe a little preview yeah. of the book as well. And I want to thank right. you for that, Sandra. <laughs> okay. so, so I had fun today, despite all the yeah. technical issues that we yeah. had. It's okay, folks. We're just, we're having fun here. Yeah. Uh, Sandra, thank you so much for coming okay. on to the program and have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye now.